Good morning, church. And uh, let me start the sermon today with a statement that I think we all can agree on. That the world we live in today is, for the most part, a meritocratic and data-driven world, right? By meritocratic, I mean simply that we are a performance-driven world. Whereby, the idea is that if we are doing good things, if we're doing the right things, the expectation is that we should be rewarded by good results. And by data-driven, I'm referring to the fact that we've been increasingly more reliant on metrics to make us help uh, make decisions, right? We figured out a way to measure pretty much everything in our lives. How much we eat, how well our body is functioning, what our chances of success are. And it's actually incredible uh, how detailed we're able to uh, measure these things now. All for the purpose of telling us whether or not we're on the right track. And I'm not saying at all that this is a bad thing. A lot of progress has been made since we figured out how to do this. But combine these two things together and we end up with a world that is trained to expect tangible, measurable results for our efforts. And if we're not getting the results that we're hoping for or working for, then by definition, we're not doing the right things, right? So we should think about changing what we're doing because as Einstein famously said, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Now this applies to most areas in our lives, I think. But when it comes to our Christian faith, our discipleship to Jesus, maybe we should take an exception. Because as our text will give us insight into today, doing the right things as Christians do not always yield the results that we hope for or even negative results. We're going to continue today in our series in the book of the seven churches of, of Revelation. And we're at the sixth church now, the church in Philadelphia. And they were definitely the best performing church out of uh, the other ones mentioned in this book. But it turns out, even so, they pretty much are in the same situation that every single church has to face at that time. Regardless of their faithfulness, they still experience persecution. And in light of this, Jesus here is not telling them at all to change their behavior, but in fact double down on the things, the right things that they have done, no matter what happened to them, no matter what earthly results are produced because of their actions, right? So let's read what the Lord says to this faithful church from Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 to 13. Okay, this is the Word of God. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, uh, but lie. Behold, 
I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has in here, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Friends, the Lord's instruction for the church that is doing their job correctly, yet nonetheless find themselves in less than an ideal situation, is simply to hold fast, to be mentally prepared to keep going, because God wants us to do what seems to be the insane thing and not waver even when what's happening seems to be the opposite of what we think we should be getting. And this text tells us that we can do this in any situation, no matter what kind of resistance we face, should we be able to take into account three factors, our three points. Resilience, regardless of results, comes from realizing, one, what's going on, two, how it's going to work out, and three, who we really are. What's going on, how it's going to work out, who you really are. May the Lord give us ears to hear what He is teaching to every church in every age. Okay? So point one. Resilience, regardless of results, comes from realizing what's going on. So look at verse 7 again. How Jesus introduced Himself to His church. He calls Himself the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David. And this description brings into view two main things. First of all, that He is God, right? He is the Holy One, the only one who is totally set apart and infinitely is higher than anything in creation. He is in a whole other category, completely unique in a league of His own. Nothing is like Him. He is a being of such absolute purity and goodness and power, unrivaled power, beauty and authority, such that only He has the right to claim to be the second thing that is mentioned here, the true one. Meaning that He is the one who is the source of ultimate reality. His word defines what is truth itself. He is the faithful and unchanging one. What He says do not only agree with what is true, But what he says defines what is truth at all. You see, these two little words, holy and true, actually describes Jesus in the highest possible, most transcendent terms as the one over all creation, the only one who is worthy of absolute trust and obedience. Nothing deserves to be a more decisive influence in our lives apart from Him. And while He is in uh, in general above all creation, He also has a special relationship with us, His people. This is what the whole key of David thing is talking about. 
Now, this is almost certainly a reference to Isaiah 22, uh, verse 22, which is the main Old Testament reference uh, for this passage. And there, this is talking about how Jesus is the prophesied Messiah from the descendants of David that God had promised. He is the one who will bring God's kingdom on earth and rule forever over all the nations. He is the one who has the keys to the kingdom. The only one who has the authority to decide who gets to be in or out of the kingdom. Now, why did the church in Philadelphia here need to hear this? Well, because as we found out a little further in verse 9, this church was being rejected and harassed by the local synagogue, who is sternly labeled as a synagogue of Satan. This was a group of Jews who have not believed in Jesus as the Messiah, and they didn't believe that anybody can be part of the kingdom of God unless they were born as a biological Jew. Thus, they were intent on keeping everyone else out. Non-Jews could even be killed if they set foot in the holy temple in Jerusalem, which uh, still existed back then. So they thought that this radically inclusive gospel message that the Christians were preaching were utterly unacceptable and totally dangerous. So they did whatever they can to silence this message, even turning these Christians over to the Roman authorities who were oppressing Israel and the Jews also actually hate. They were working, willing to work with the enemy in order to silence the gospel. And so Jesus is saying here to them, these guys, they don't know what's going on. Don't listen to them. They do not have any right telling you that you don't belong. Because at the end of verse 7 and verse 8 tells us, he is the only one who gets to open and shut the door. And guess what? God the gatekeeper says, Right now, the doors of heaven, the doors to the kingdom of God is open to all. So no matter what anyone says, no matter what everyone else is doing, the one who calls the shots is telling us that the door is not shut, that right now what he's doing, what he's working on is gathering all his scattered people into his kingdom. This is the truth that must be governing how we live right now. Because anybody or anything that is still in any way trying to keep people out of God's kingdom, they're not in on the program and they're doing something foolish, something deviant. It is they who are actually powerless to stop this movement. This is what verse 8 assures them of. And you can imagine how this message can encourage these relatively small communities with little influence that seems like they have the whole world against them. The Jews, who they would expect it to be their greatest allies, is in fact their greatest rejecters. And the greatest empire, the most powerful force in the history of the world at that time, was against them. So for every human perspective, it seems like for them all hope is lost. It would be hard to see what hope they have to survive considering the overwhelming challenges they had to overcome. But in this, and in this situation, giving up and giving in to the powers can really seem like a very reasonable option. 
But God in this text is promising this persecuted church that the ones who aren't going to survive are the ones who are actually against this movement. And that's been proven, isn't it? The Roman Empire has long passed away. And look at where the church of Jesus Christ is here right now. Look around us. So it's demonstrably true that should we remain faithful as they have been, we're going to do much more than survive. And we're going to talk about that a little later. But for now, let's camp out a little bit on how the governing truth, the basic foundation of reality about what we think is going on right now, that should shape how we think, is the fact that now Jesus is king and the gates of the kingdom of heaven are open. How would living constantly, consistently with this reality change the way we live? What difference would it make to the decisions and what our hopes, ambitions, and plans for our lives are? Because let me tell you how I'm living most of the time. I live as if I'm king. And the only kingdom I'm worried about building is my own. I know that most of the time, my mind is preoccupied with how I can make sure I can live comfortably with my family and my house. How I can set my family up for the future. Only occasionally, I ask what God is doing in the community around me. Very rarely am I worried about actually welcoming people into the kingdom of God. And I do full-time ministry, guys. And that's because, though I'm not in, under any kind of pressure that is even comparable to the church in Philadelphia in the first century, what's for sure is that I am much more willing to give in to the pressures that comes from living in Jakarta in the 21st century. There are a lot of expectations from our family, our cultures, and even that we put on ourselves about the kind of life that we should live. And we dedicate our whole lives working just so that these expectations can be met. But this text is calling each of us to wake up and realize that God right now is doing something much more meaningful than that. And we have the privileged invitation to actively participate in this royal work of God. So all these lovely and charming things that the world does offer, enjoyable as they are right now, in the grand scheme of things, are vanity. They will pass away. But there is something much more eternally meaningful that's going on. God has made us and saved us for so much more. So let me ask you guys, what might be your role in God's kingdom work? This is really important for us actually to figure out because ignoring this and falling into complacency but by not holding on to all our might that this is what God is doing which is especially easy for us to slip into in the privileged and comfortable position that a lot of us are in right now, is pretty harmful. And it jeopardizes the purposes of God behind the challenges and struggles 
that normal human lives inevitably face. Which is point two. Resilience, regardless of results, comes from realizing how it's going to work out. So, after Jesus establishes for the church who He is and what He's doing right now in the world, He, he tells this church three things that He's going to do in the world. And I got to admit, this is definitely the most disputed part of our passage, right? Followers of Jesus, faithful followers of Jesus, has read this passage in a radically different way. And I can't get into all of the complexities of this discussion, but I just want to acknowledge these differences while opening myself up to any questions or discussions that you might want to have if you're really interested in talking about this. However, to the best of my knowledge, this makes the most sense of the biblical data. Okay, so first, in verse 9, Jesus tells this church that though they are in a mistreated and disadvantaged position right now, the ones who are now oppressing them will end up being bowing before their feet, and that they will learn that God had loved them. Now, Although Jesus says that believers indeed will reign with Christ over the earth, I don't think the statement implies that we're going to get to boss everyone around. But if we take bowing before our feet with uh, the learning that God will love us, that they will learn God loves us as related statement, I think that this has in view how the Old Testament tells us that in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. So it is first that Jesus gets acknowledged as Lord, then the ones who lorded their authorities over us will finally humble themselves and honor us, not because we're great, but because Jesus honors us. And one implication of this is that any disrespect that we right now endure on this earth will be reckoned with. Nothing will just slide. And there will be ultimate justice and remorse from the ones who wronged and reject us. There will be remorse from us towards those who disrespect us or those who we disrespected. As the Lord himself promised, those who will wait upon the Lord will never be put to shame. Therefore, it's totally senseless for us to derive any significant security and value from what the world thinks of us. We cannot let any human opinion define us. Only what Christ thinks of us matters. This text is telling us that in the end, every single human is going to see what Jesus thinks of us is the right way. They're going to agree with Jesus. So let me ask you, do you know what Jesus thinks of you? Do you know what he would say if he's seeing you right now? And what difference would it make if God's narrative about you becomes your narrative about your life? Is worth pondering. Can you see yourself as wonderfully and infinitely loved, even if you're still single, whatever age you are right now? Can you see yourself as beautiful and precious 
no matter what you look like or how we're performing right now, do you see your life as meaningful or honorable even if your income or achievements are a fraction of what your neighbors and peers are making? Friends, we cannot underestimate this, how important this is, how important it is for us to learn to understand that every single human in the world can only evaluate things from a limited perspective that will ultimately be proven wrong by Jesus. So that we can grow in light of Christ's love for us because otherwise our experience of the world will be no different from those who do not know God. Which is related to the second thing that the Lord said He will do, that if we endure and keep His word, Jesus promises that we will be kept from the, honor, from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Now let me tell you what this certainly does not mean, right? It's definitely not saying that Christians... Uh, if you're a good Christian, God will not allow you to go through any earthly suffering and trials, right? The church in Philadelphia were faithful, yet they still faced intense trial. And this also isn't talking about some future rapture situation, like they will avoid the, this time of tribulation, because in chapter 7, verse 14 of Revelation, it talks about the, state, the saints coming out of the tribulation, and there, it's about the persecution that the first churches were facing. So the book of Revelation itself pretty much assumes that we are right now, the church is in the midst of these trials. So the perspective that most Reformed people take, right, called amillennialism, you can look that up if you're super interested because there's a lot more to it than what I'm saying here. We think that the period of tribulation is the entire period between Jesus' first coming and His second. Wherein, in the world, evil will continue to grow. There will continue to be suffering and hardship, culminating in this future period of most intense tribulation before Jesus finally returns and judge the world in a final way and cleanse and defeat sin decisively for a final time. So then... In this view, this passage is saying that faithful Christians will endure tribulation as well. In fact, the rest of the Bible pretty much says clearly that hardship and suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life. But whereas suffering will serve to further harden sinners and lead them deeper into bitterness and hate for those who are being saved, Suffering will sanctify us and draw us closer to the glory of Christ. This is what's promised by God will be the reward for our faithful endurance. What we will be protected from, from this hardening is this hardening potential of tribulations and hardships. That we will brought, be brought through these trials not as a hardened, bitter sinner, but as a more glorious creation that is closer to the image of the living God. But as the third thing Jesus tells us here that He will do, 
the sanctifying effect of suffering and hardship is conditional. Only possible if our response as we go through suffering is faithful endurance. As verse 11 tells us, I am coming soon, so hold fast to what you have. So the main reason the Lord is uh, telling this to this church is to assure us that the world will face trials only for a limited time. That it won't always be like this. The hard times will not last forever. Highlighting again how we aren't going to escape the coming trials, but are going to be given the strength to survive it. So in the meantime, Jesus tells us to hold on. And he gives us an interesting reason here for why we should keep holding on. He says, so that no one may seize your crown. Now, I don't think Jesus is threatening this faithful church here, right? Like, unless you're faithful, you're going to be doomed. Because if we go back to Isaiah 22, which was quoted earlier as the Old Testament background of our text, we find that this was actually in the context of a story of how God promises to take the crown from the evil king Shebna in order to give it to the faithful Eliakim. So the crown is a sign that God chose Eliakim. So most likely here is that Jesus is using the crown as a metaphor to talk about how this marks someone as having God's favor and having been called into his service. In other words, the crown is not something that we earn through faithful endurance, you see. But it's something that marks us as someone among those who have been empowered by God to be faithful. See what I'm saying? Do you see how understanding it this way makes a world of difference? Because now the words of Jesus here intends to strengthen us instead of making us panic. Yes, Jesus warns us that there are powers out there trying to take us down and lead us away from our calling. But at the same time, He is encouraging us here by telling us that God has given us a crown. That though some of us might look like the church in Philadelphia without any real strength or influence, we actually have been given all the power and all the strength that we need to overcome whatever comes our way. So let us behave becomingly of our calling by not bowing down or giving up in the midst of whatever pressure or influence or hardship the world is trying to impose upon us. Rather, let us stand up Keep calm and carry on, being rooted in the sure foundation that Jesus has won for us, which is what we'll discuss in point three. Resilience, regardless of results, comes from realizing who we really are. Let's focus lastly on who Jesus declares those who have been given the crown, those who have been given the power to overcome and conquer are in the eyes of God. Verse 12, he uses a couple of pretty loaded metaphors here, which would have spoken powerfully, actually, to the church in Philadelphia. He first says that he will make us 
pillars in the temple of my God, and then never shall he go out of it, he adds. This is an incredibly affirming statement to them. Because remember, the ones who were persecuting this church were the Jews who excluded them from the temple, saying that they have no right to worship God or be in it. And Jesus here is saying is that not only they are welcome in the temple, that we are part of the temple. Meaning that God designed the temple that He built Himself with us as the very part of its architecture. So we are not some contingent, inconsequential, optional part of God's temple. But God wants you and me to be a permanent, integral part of it. God's temple wouldn't be complete if you or I weren't in it. And in the temple, in the Bible, friends, the temple wasn't only just this place where religious things happen. But the temple is God's house. God lived there. It's where humans get to go and meet God. So if we are part of the temple, that means right now, through us, people get to encounter God. The New Testament authors uh, pick up on this motif that believers are now temples of the Holy Spirit in a couple of other places, most notably in 1 Peter 2, where he calls us living stones being built into a spiritual house upon the foundation of Christ, the chief cornerstone. Stones that are rejected by men but are chosen and precious in the eyes of God, His treasured possession, who are called not to be a stone of stumbling, but to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. So there is this radical change of identity for the Christian. No longer are we defined by any cultural expectations or can we be evaluated by any human opinion. Because ultimately, before anything else, the most true thing about every single one of us who follow Christ is that we belong to Jesus. And that we are no longer only representing our own interests, but God. And this is what the second metaphor here is talking about. Look again at the second half of verse 12. God will write upon us the name of God, the city of God, and the name of Christ Himself. So now, we have been totally labeled with the name of God, being completely identified with God. We bear His name. We are citizens of His kingdom, adopted into His house. So on the one hand, this promise does give us a profound and absolute assurance about our standing with God, yet at the same time, it also gives a profound weightiness to our actions here. Because now our actions are elevated. They, are, they, can, they can be a means by which people encounter God, but at the same time, our sins are also amplified because they no longer only implicate ourselves, but also God. Our selfishness and stupid decisions 
don't only reflect poorly on ourselves, but also to God. So let us not take the Lord's name in vain. This is what I think the third commandment is all about. It's more, much more significant than just cussing, right? Than saying OMG in the full version. God here is telling His people to not rep- misrepresent Him by striving to be a way for people to see God for who He really is. So that the world can know and understand His deeply loving and gracious character that people will be welcomed to encounter and worship Him in His holy temple. Friends, we must internalize that though this is a ton of pressure, that this is not something we got to do, but more about something that we actually get to do. What a weighty and glorious responsibility this is for limited creatures like me and maybe some of you who are still struggling with sin. And it sounds like a lot of pressure that I myself can't ever imagining myself living up to through my own wisdom and power. I fail all the time. And I have been that person who made someone say, I'll never go to church if it's filled with someone like him. That's, that's a hard and very discouraging pill to swallow. But at this point, friends, it's where I have to preach the gospel to myself. And if you're going through the same thing, it might be good to do for you. That no matter what anyone says, or what anyone does, because of what Jesus has done on the cross, nonetheless, however we may fail, the kingdom of God is right now open to all. The door is still open. And we have been given the privilege to participate in this work and invite people in, though we will not do it perfectly. So don't let the opinions or evaluations of the world or our culture or whatever else weigh us down, right? Too much. Sometimes there might be good feedback and, and we can listen to them sometimes. But rather, let's first and foremost rest in the identity that we have in Christ. Lean on Him so that every suffering and hardship and setback that could hold us down, actually makes us more like Christ and less like a hardened sinner. Let us hold fast to this crown of life that has been given to us because the king of the universe gave up his crown. He became a complete and abject failure by every standard and every evaluation of the world, betrayed by his friends, rejected by his culture, murdered by his government. But yet, because Jesus was faithful in the face of all this hardship, God showed the world his love for him, his love for his righteousness by raising him from the grave, lifting his name above every name so that in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. And friends, 
The gospel tells us that his story is now your story. It's my story. This hope that we have in Jesus is how we know and how the world will know that God indeed loves us. So if this becomes our story, faithfulness is the only metric or data point that we have to worry about. Hence today, if you are still trying to be faithful, it is only because, please realize, that God has given you this crown. And I pray that we can all appreciate, those of us who follow Christ, the gravity of that. And may this spur us on to do our best with this privilege. But if it is not yet your story, and if you don't know if God has indeed loved you, if you have any doubt whether or not you're citizens of the heavenly city, I tell you right now that the door, the kingdom of God, is open to you. You may be, you might just be, a pillar in this temple too. So if you want to be in God's house, a part of His household, the promises of God says that if you renounce your sin and leave your former ways and commit to following Christ alone, you will be built into His house. And you will never, no matter what anyone does, be moved. Amen? Let's pray. Blessed are you, the Lord our God, our refuge, our strength in times of need, our rock, our deliverer. Lord, you have become the chief cornerstone. You were rejected for us so that we can be built upon you. Understand, Lord, that you have built your house and we will not strive in vain. Under, give us the perspective, Lord, that whatever trials we face, we know that you are already victorious. And therefore, send us your Holy Spirit that we may be encouraged to persevere, to continue pursuing faithfulness though the world might greatly tempt us otherwise. We know we will fail, Lord, but we know with greater assurance that you have succeeded. Let us rest on that. Let us lean on that. And may we never be comfortable in our efforts and our vain attempts to look for what you have given us, what you have offered us in these vain and temporary things in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.